My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in one of two ways. Number one, you can write a brief review on iTunes, or number two, you can simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show will be Ramez Naam, and this will be our fourth interview. So I think that Ramez will be breaking the record for the all-time most popular yeah. guest so far on Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. Hi, Ramez. Hi, Nicola. Uh, I'm so happy to have you back on my show. Thanks. It's great to be here again. You know, the, the reason why you are the most popular interviewee so far is, is um, uh, multi-dimensional. So first of all, it's always fun to talk to you. You have a lot of cool and interesting things to say, and I respect your opinion very much. Secondly, you have a number, a growing number of a variety of both fiction and non-fiction books, which are all very relevant to both my interest and my audience's interest. And for all those reasons, you know, I, I'm just always happy to chat with you. Well, thank you, Nicola. I thought it was my stunning good looks, actually. But yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't want to disappoint you there, but, you know, I, it's like me trying <laughs> to say, well, probably not as bad, but me trying to say that people come to, to watch my show because of my amazing haircut or something like that. <laughs> something like that. Yes. <laughs> well, we have what we have and we might as well be happy with it. Yes. So, Ramez, the, the, the reason why I brought you back today is because it's been a few months since uh, the latest installment of uh, one of my favorite science fiction trilogies uh, came out, and it's called Apex. So, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your latest book? Thanks. Yeah, Apex is the, the third and final book of the Nexus trilogy. Nexus deals with nanotechnology in the human brain that enables brain-to-brain -brain communication wirelessly. And uh, Apex takes it to sort of the societal impacts in a very explosive way, uh, spanning the U.S., China, India, the whole world. That's uh, uh, fascinating. So let me ask you, do people who perhaps may not have read uh, part one or part two so far, do they have to start at the beginning or can they just jump in and read the last one? You should read the whole series. You should start with Nexus and then you'll appreciate what happens in, in Crux and then Apex a lot more. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. I mean, I think that you could read Apex on its own and it will be still absolutely amazing. But uh, it will be best if you start at the beginning so you can follow the character development and, and all the sort of the twists and turns that they take to get to where they are at the beginning of, of book three. Uh, and, and speaking of, 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 of book three, I have to say you sure as heck know how to grab the attention from the very first line. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, the first line is the first a prologue is titled this is how the world ends uh and from there it just goes on so yeah i like to grab people's attention yeah and and you do manage to do it successfully absolutely uh your books are always a very fast and or addictive read uh, I, I always have to make sure I've kind of given myself enough space, space in the back end because I, if I st I've made the mistake in the past where I think, oh, I'm going to read for a couple of hours and I'm going to come back to it tomorrow, never works like that for me with your books. That is the ultimate praise to an author. Uh, when someone says, I w I'm short on sleep today, I was up all night reading your book. That's exactly what we want to hear. 
So, so give us a little bit more about uh, perhaps uh, what can you tell us about uh, Apex without any spoilers that would entice us to to open and and read be beyond the first chapter. Yeah, the book has always been those three books have always been about the combination of a few things. It's about a technology, uh, you know, that's remarkable and its ability to connect people. Um, and I'm an optimist. I believe technology overwhelmingly gets used for the positive, but all technologies get used in bad ways too. So I want to address that. And it's about not just the bad things that happen in isolation, but society's response to this disruptive technology. Uh, sometimes we get scared of new technologies, we want to ban them. That's a plot thread. Uh, some uh, agents, you know, corporations, companies, whoever, with lower ethics might want to employ them in ways that people wouldn't. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, the third book is in large part about how greater connectivity between people, as the Nexus technology gets out to more and more people, uh, is transformative to politics and society and can overwhelm old structures. Mm -hmm. And in our past, uh, in our latest uh, interview that we did uh, in Seattle, in Greg Bear's home, or, or office rather, uh, you said that it is the most political out of the, the, the previous two books of the trilogy. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, so in a certain sense, uh, Nexus was a story about technology, but also about the war on drugs and the war on terror and a civil liberties viewpoint. Uh, and Crux sort of continued that. Apex uh, was heavily inspired by the Arab Spring, Occupy, uh, the success of Chinese protesters in environmental uh, efforts. And so it is dealing extensively with uh, the relationship between the U.S., China, and India, three superpowers in the near future, and also with how people with more connection to each other than ever before uh, might be more empowered to try to change the systems that they're in. So is there a, a sort of a, a hidden message about what we ought to be doing or what we ought not to be doing? Uh, I mean, there are. It, it, my opinions come across in the book. I try to be fair to every side, including those I don't agree with. And, and there's no true villains in any of the books, I don't think. There are people uh, or entities doing what they're doing for a reason that uh, it seems very wise to them. Um, but there are messages that I think uh, wholesale prohibition of new technologies that people want never works. Uh, it, you just push things underground, you make them out of sight, safety goes down, ethical uses go down. Uh, so that's one message. And overall, though, it's a message of, of optimism, of hope, that more empowerment of individuals and more ability of people to connect really gives them the ability to choose their own destiny as individuals or as societies. Yeah, and, and uh, is that connected in, in, in any way with the size of the book, perhaps? Because, <laughs> because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that one was the thickest of the, of the three. The books have gotten thicker, each one. Uh, so Apex, my publisher said, why don't you make this two books? And uh, there was just no convenient way to do it. So it is a thick book, and it's because I want to deal with uh, political unrest in the U.S., with what's happening with our protagonists, with protests and riots on the streets, and with similar themes in China. And that took some serious uh, amount of, of wordage to do justice to, I think, to treat it in a deep way. Uh, but 
as you did, most people tell me that it still reads extremely quickly. It does. It does. Absolutely. Um, and you, uh, we, we've mentioned how you managed to sort of get the jugular uh, and on the first, uh, you know, line, if you will. But and, and that's kind of a very dark sort of dystopian beginning, the end of the world, right? So, so tell me about whether it's easier to, is it first, first of all to fair to say that it's a dystopian book? And secondly, is it easier to write uh, a sort of a, the end of the world scenario than, than let's say a utopia or, or, or a positive scenario? Because it would appear that both in novels and in theater and in science fiction, uh, most authors tend to lean towards sort of end of the world scenarios. Yeah, so some people have called my novels dystopian. I actually don't think they are. They are novels in which dark things happen uh, often to the people who are trying to change the world for the better, uh, sometimes to other people as well, sometimes the bad guys as much as there are. But overall, the world is getting better. Um, I've been compared to Michael Crichton, and I think it's interesting. Michael Crichton wrote thrillers for a mass audience, but in his thrillers, science or scientists were often a sort of, not exactly the villains, but the cause of the problem. Uh, in Jurassic Park, it's that the scientists uh, don't understand the ramifications or the consequences of the thing that they're doing. My books are sort of the opposite. They are books that are thrillers, but where the scientists are generally the good guys, and more knowledge is good, and politics is often holding it back. Uh, but ultimately, they're they're optimistic about the ability to push past that with a great deal of struggle. And I, I don't want to, you know, not portray that. It, it is easier to write a dystopian book in a lot of ways. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, the biggest one for me, and I don't think that my books are dystopian, but they have dark elements. The biggest one for me is that you want the book to be a page turner. And if I wrote a book that said more people were able to connect and crime went down, violence went down, innovation went up, peace and harmony, uh, people would be like, why am I reading this? I'm going to put this down and pick up The Hunger Games because that's more exciting. Uh, so for me, the some degree of tension. I can't stand The Hunger Games, by the way, just to share with you. I, I enjoyed the books. I especially enjoyed the first two books, actually. And the movies have been okay. Um, but you, even if the world is getting better, you need something as a fiction author to grip the reader. In a way, I think about uh, the late Ian Banks, who was a, a master of science fiction in his, his culture novels. His culture novels were set in a utopia, more or less, uh, sort of a, a post-scarcity utopia of friendly AIs and so on. And yet they're some of the darkest uh, science fiction ever written because he writes these gripping plot lines on the very margins, on the very edges of the utopia. Uh, and in that way, he sucks the reader in and also exposes them to these sort of utopian ideals that he has. Yeah, and, 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 and going back to the sort of the interplay between science and politics, uh, I just watched uh, the latest installment of Jurassic World or uh, a couple of days ago. And, and again, I mean, I didn't like the movie at all. I, I didn't realize, I didn't understand how it could make half a billion dollars in such a short time. But scientists were definitely portrayed as the villains again, like very shallow, selfish 
single track minded kind of individuals. Yeah, which I don't think is really realistic. I mean, realistically, the actual story of our world is that science and engineering have brought us huge good and made our lives better and better and better. Um, and not that politicians are necessarily the bad guys either, uh, but that progress really does happen. But again, you've got to have a hook. You've got to have some reason to cause excitement in the reader. And so Crichton often, not always, did that by having this this plot thread where a scientist does something in secret that no one knows about. This is David Brin's critique of Crichton, that it's about the secrecy. And then when their secret thing is unleashed to the world, uh, bad things happen. Because if they'd only gotten input earlier, somebody would have told them that's a bad idea. In the real world, science happens through publication and peer review, and you're kind of constantly getting getting input from others, and there's all sorts of ethical journals and people pontificating on TV and in print about whether or not your research is a good idea or not. It's nothing like what happens on Jurassic World or the Island of Dr. Moreau or, or any of these stories. So is it, in a way, at least partially, a defense of science and a at least partially an assault on politics. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I, uh, you know, I, politics don't have to be bad in any way. It was, it's an assault on the politics of control. Uh, I'm a civil libertarian. I think the war on drugs in the U.S. is a terrible thing. I think the war on terror is itself uh, the, a terrifying thing. And uh, so when I was writing Nexus, the very beginning, I knew the technology I wanted to write about, this brain-computer interface technology that fascinated me. And when I thought about the plot threads, I thought, well, the thing that aggravates me most in uh, the, sort of the political situation is the reduction of civil liberties, the reduction of freedom in the name of fear that's not entirely ungrounded, but massively exaggerated. Uh, and so that's really what I'm advocating for. They're books that are pro-freedom. Let me ask you a couple of very selfish questions here. Sure. So, so I watched the previous interview with you where you had someone who asked you to be a character in one of your books. Uh, and you said that they were, since they were the only person who ever asked you for that, you put them there. I did, yes. That was Michael Arrington. How about if I make myself the, the second person? Okay, Nicola, for you. You will be a character in the next book. You might die early. You know, there's no guarantee, but I'll put you in. That's Remind okay. me an email. Yes. Absolutely. Well, actually, I recently interviewed PJ Manny on, on her uh, first book, uh, and she kills uh, Anders Sandberg uh, in the first couple of pages. <laughs> Not Anders. Oh, no. <laughs> He's such a likable fellow, too. He is. Yes. Right? At least for me, there's not going to be too many people crying, but he's such a likable <laughs> fellow. Anders is very likable, but so are you. I think there will be some, some tears shed when you <laughs> brutally die. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and the other selfish question is, when are you going to write a, an article for Singularity Weblog? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I am trying to say no to more things so that I can say yes to things like writing novels that I know you love. So uh, I will not say yes to that on air because I know you want a novel. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, and, and, and since I'm a fan of your novels, I don't want to take away uh, uh, of, that, of that time. Plus, you know, I'm already going to be character in your next novel, so I, I'd better be careful from now on, right? <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, who knows what's going to happen. So with such a, okay, let, let's talk a little bit about the science behind, um, behind your Apex novel. Uh, how realistic is it to expect that it would materialize itself? 
So there's there's one prime piece of science throughout the Nexus books, which is neural interfaces, neural prosthetics, the idea that there is technology running in your brain that can communicate wirelessly with people and even do other things that can uh, affect the function of your brain, can put you to sleep or can uh, maybe interact with your memories or your, your body and so on. There's another set of things in Apex, but we can leave that for a second. That technology of brain-computer interfaces or neural prosthetics is real in a sense today, but it's very primitive. And it's primitive really in two ways. Um, actually, before I say how primitive it is, let me tell you what's happening. So as your listeners and watchers probably know, we have had interfaces placed, implants placed in the brain that allow paralyzed people to control robot limbs or to control a cursor on a screen by thinking about it. And those limbs and those cursors become an extension of their body. We have pumped video straight into the visual cortex of blind people. We have 200,000 people that have cochlear implants that are not hearing aids. Instead, they send electrical signals straight into the nervous system. Uh, And in mice, we have restored damaged memories. We've gotten the ability to record a memory and play it back. And in monkeys, we've even improved their pattern matching skill. So So all of this you know, is where I extrapolate from. That, hey, we can get data in and out of the brain. We could then send it from person to person. Uh, We could do various processing on it. But in the real world, the big hurdle is that to get these implants into the brain, we have to cut open the skull. (laughs) And few people are really excited about voluntary brain surgery. If you are a quadriplegic and someone says, we're going to do brain surgery and that will give you the ability to communicate and and move and so on again, the upside versus downside looks better. If you are a healthy, normal person, uh, that equation does not look as good. That said, there is progress being made uh, all the time. And just this last week, uh, there was, uh, maybe two weeks ago, there was a, a study where in mice they had injected a mesh of electrodes and they had done it not through surgery but through a needle. They had stuck a needle into the mouse, through the mouse skull, which is still trauma, but much less than cutting it open. And they had injected this mesh that unrolled and then covered part of the cortex and was a mesh of electrodes where they could address individual neurons. <laughs> Uh, That's one example. Uh, And there's others like that, where the technology, the underlying technology is coming along for three reasons. One, we want to help the sick and injured. And there's tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people that have some problem uh, with sight or hearing or memory or attention or paralysis that could be helped. Two, because we just want to understand the brain better. And three... Uh, The second largest funder of such research after the NIH, which is number one, is DARPA. Uh, And DARPA funds it, you know, largely because they want to help soldiers that have been uh, injured in war and so on. But they're also thinking about the human enhancement potential down the road. Mm -hmm. And I know you're you're being asked this question all the time, but, but I still have to ask it. So how is the timeline then unfolding? When are we going to have Nexus? People would want to know. Yeah. So... The books are set in 2040. I do not think we will have Nexus in 2040. I think it will take substantially longer than that. And I don't think, I think it will probably never be 
as easy as Nexus is portrayed. Well, never is a strong word. Um, but I can imagine that by 2040, we would have something that is, you know, 1% as good as Nexus, perhaps, and that uh, is not as simple as swallowing a vial of nanoparticles, which is how it happens in, in the books, but is something that is less traumatic than a multi-hour brain surgery and two days of inpatient, where it is something like we inject something uh, in through the skull and it unfurls and it gives a little bit of functionality, for instance, um, or something like that. But why are you, so on the one hand, you just gave us all those examples about real science and progress that you said was moving at a fast pace and you, you even gave, gave the example of the mice with the, with the neural mesh uh, being implanted in, in their brain. And yet you're saying in 25 years from now, we're not going to have it. Medical technology moves much slower than Moore's Law. And the reason for that is that our tolerance for error is very, very low. And our tolerance for error, even in trials and experimentation, is very, very low. So the first rule of medicine is do no harm. And that applies even to the patients in uh, medical trials. Um, and it applies to some extent even to animal studies. Uh, my girlfriend is a PhD biologist. She did her work on tuberculosis. And there are review boards for the, the study protocols for how they're going to treat mice. Uh, and these are mice that they know that they're going to kill in the long run to study how whether or not the drug they designed works to stop tuberculosis. But the, there are review boards, then protocol approvals that say there can be a no unnecessary suffering, so on, which that is how we should want it to be, but that slows down the process tremendously. If you think about it in, in software, uh, let's say I create a fantastic new uh, piece of software on your phone that gives you augmented reality when you look around. It does amazing things. And I release it, and it crashes. Ah, whatever. I'll send you a new version. If this is running in your brain, the implications are uh, so extreme that our uh, degree of certainty has to be very, very high. Yeah, that's why I'm not going to be an early adopter of such a technology. Everyone says they will not take V1. People usually say they'll take V3, uh, which you would think is a problem, but there are enough people who really have severe trauma, uh, or maybe they're in late-stage Alzheimer's. We don't really have an application that's for Alzheimer's, but something like that, that I think they will be the real V1. And they're, they're, even, they're the V0.1 adopters right now. Let me give you a couple of other examples uh, of why uh, there's a lot of skepticism about the Nexus technology out there. So I recently um, interviewed uh, Dr. Miguel Nicolelis uh, and Dr. Ronald Sicurel, and they wrote this book called The Relativistic Brain. Yes. Uh, and their basic claim is the singularity isn't near and the brain cannot be simulated. And they go through a lot of effort into their whole book by giving mathematical reasons, uh, 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 new, new, neurological reasons, uh, computational reasons, and so on, as to why that will be the case. And so, uh, I mean, I, I find found that very interesting that one of the people who is at the very cutting edge, at the forefront of brain-to-brain of, uh, -brain interface technology, to be highly skeptical uh, of, of the future potential of that. And he was saying that basically for some simple 
uh, activities like mot uh, like um, the motor cortex and things like that, we would be able to do better than what he's doing today, for example, with his exoskeleton uh, brain-machine interface. But when it comes to brain-to-brain -brain communication, we, we will... Oh, he's also optimistic that that will be in some rudimentary form possible. But when it comes to brain simulation and uploading and things like that, and artificial intelligence, he believes that the brain is ultimately non-simulatable, non-computable. Yeah. So I would say let's separate those two things of uh, neural interfaces and brain-to-brain -brain communication and so on. And it was a paper of Nicolaitis's that I read in 2000 that first got me interested in this field. Uh, and I think he's saying there it will be possible. And the, the big bottleneck in the brain-to-brain -brain communication, brain interfaces, is really the hardware. Can you design hardware that can access, uh, instead of hundreds of neurons, which is what we access today, can access millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions, and that can be done without trauma, right, or with minimal trauma. That's the big hurdle there. On the topic of brain simulation, so I'm a, a singularity, I'm not exactly skeptic, but I, I think I'm a, I'm, a, I think the term is abused and used in such ways that we don't even know what we're talking about sometimes. Um, and the Werner Vingian singularity uh, probably is impossible. The Kurzweilian singularity of uh, just greater than human intelligence and a general intelligence, whether it's in an AI or an upload, is possible. I'm convinced of that, but uh, it's probably much more distant than we think. Um, I don't see any reason to believe that the brain is non-computable. So far as we know of in nature, everything is computable at least to a high degree of approximation, right? You don't necessarily have to produce an exact simulation of the brain for it to work really well. If it's a 99.99% accurate simulation, that may indeed be... Uh, more similar, if we're uploading you and we get a 99.99% accuracy simulation, that might be closer to the U of today than the U of tomorrow is to the U of today, depending on what the, the error bars are. Um, but I, even today, I think we have large holes still in our knowledge of exactly how things function in the brain um, at the very basic levels and more importantly, how the very basic levels of brain function relate to uh, the very highest levels of cognition. Let me give you an example. There are, you have this idea of behavior, right? Of I'm, We're talking right now. So at what level of the brain is it important to simulate in order to be able to produce the phenomenon of talking? I'm not talking about writing AI code. I'm just talking about simulating a brain. You could say it's the different uh, sort of modules of the brain. Maybe you have hundreds or thousands of such modules. You could say it's the cortical stacks of which you have many millions of those. You could say it is small clusters of neurons of which you have you know, maybe hundreds of millions or billions. You could say it's individual neurons, which you have billions. You could say it's synapses, the connections between neurons, which you have a hundred trillion or so. Or you could say, even if you have an exact replica of every neuron or uh, you know, one compute node per neuron and per synapse, that you still might be missing behavior because there might still be important... Like the functions. magnetic fields that they're talking about, for example. 
Yes, so the long-range magnetic and electrical fields affect things happening in the brain. Neuron, like neural firing in one part of the brain can affect things inches away because of electric or magnetic field. We don't really know if that encodes information or not. Um, or within a neuron, so a neuron is larger than an amoeba, okay? A neuron is a, a eukaryotic cell, which has a, a large cell nucleus and so on. And amoeba is a prokaryotic cell, which is many times smaller than a neuron. Amoebae hunt. They have memories. They know where the food is in very, very primitive ways. So there's clearly cognition going on in this very simple cell, of which our neurons are more complex, and the most models that we have for brain simulations don't account for that or don't leave enough room for that. So to me, though, the question is not, is it uh, theoretically possible? It is theoretically possible. The question is, what layer do you have to go to in accuracy of your simulation in order to produce a good result? But why do you say it is theoretically possible? Because... Uh, Nicolelis and Picurel say that that's the most common presumption of comp what they call computationalism. Yes. And that's a premise that's rarely tested or, or considered scientifically. And that was what they say was their goal, to test that hypothesis. And then they go through uh, the halting problems, Goodell in Goodell's incompleteness theory, uh, they go through uh, what they call uh, the tape of evolution experiment. They go through uh, all kinds of neurobio neurobiological structures, which they say are non-computable or non-simulatable. Uh, in other words, there's no way you can translate their behavior, according to them, on, on a sort of a digital uh, stratum. Uh, and, and, yeah, I mean, so... How about that? So when someone says something is non-computable, I think they don't understand computation very well. Or they're uh, really fixated on 100% uh, precise replication and not approximation. And I have not read the book yet. But let me first address the issue of, of non-computability. And then I'll come to the most common arguments that Penrose uses arguments along the lines of the halting problem and Goodell's completeness theorem. And they're massive abuses. They're like, it's totally wrong, actually. Um, so... Let's talk about sound, okay? Um, when a sound wave hits you, so I talk to you, something uh, is transmitted electronically. So, hey, like acoustic waves leave my mouth and my lungs, strike this little microphone, then they're converted into a digital signal that goes across the internet from Seattle to Toronto, who knows where it bounces through, and then it reaches you, uh, and then it's reconverted into acoustic pulses by your speakers. Okay? The, uh, if you wanted to model sound exactly, we would have to model the motion of every molecule in between the speaker and your ear, and every molecule in between, uh, well, my diaphragm, probably, all the way up to this speaker, right? And those have interactions with the air pressure all around them and the gravity and so on, and it would quickly become a very, very, very intractable problem. Instead, we sample. We sample here at uh, tens to hundreds of thousands of times per second. We sample the activity of just what's striking the microphone, and we ignore everything else. And yet we produce usable sound. Not just usable sound. We produce uh, 
very high fidelity sound with different electronics that are still using the fundamentally the same algorithm. But we're going to sample you know, 44 kilohertz to 220 kilohertz, like 220,000 times a second, which sounds like a lot, but is many orders of magnitude smaller than the actual data in all the air molecules. And that can produce a fidelity recording of music that is indistinguishable from live music if you have the right playback gear and so on. Yeah, but Nikolelis would say that that's, a, that's, a, that's true only at the level of, let's say, the motor cortex. So he says, yes, you can use the motor cortex and kind of hook it into an interface and then run an exoskeleton, for example, right? But as far as it goes to the higher uh, levels of behavior, such as creativity, love, etc., then he says, or, uh, or self-awareness, uh, etc., then he says, there's no way you can make the jump. So yeah, he says, what you say about sound is also true about the motor cortex and about movement, simple movement, simple motions. But from there on, you're going an order of magnitude, and he says, we cannot do that jump from a brain anatomy standpoint there is nothing special about love versus motion okay. it is still the firing of neurons the passage of neurotransmitters the electric potentials they create the ramifications of that if you looked at a brain firing you would see the same basic physical properties happening when recorded music first came out, he knew that analogy. But he says you can't see those properties. And the example that he gave me was, if I hook up a monkey to a machine and ask the monkey to move its hand, it could go to the end of the universe and the, the, the output will never be the same. That's what he told me. He told me every time it's, it's a different output. It's not the same. That's okay. I mean, every time that we talk, it is not the same sound waves. It is not the same motion of molecules. Um, the, the brain has 100 trillion neurons, and the pathological patterns of firing are gigantic, right? That doesn't mean that we can't still comprehend what's going on, even if it's slightly different every time. In the same way that there, I have never said the same word exactly the same way twice, right? And yet you can comprehend it. Um, I, I think what's happening, so you should be aware that with, for Nicolaelis, before his work and before Philip Kennedy's work and humans and so on, people said that what they did well, was impossible. Yes, yes. Right? Um, but we, we know that electrically we can, uh, there's much older work actually uh, that has shown that in animals, electrically we can induce uh, aggression or passivity. We can change who is at the top of a social hierarchy in a primate colony. Uh, we can induce pleasure in humans. So there's, there's a lot of work on sort of uh, non-motion um, stuff. And there's currently, there's the work of uh, Theodore Berger, Ted Berger at at uh, University of California, University of Southern California, who's doing work on memory. So in mice, they have they can record a mice going through a, uh, a maze. They can restore the ability of the mice to learn new memories after it's been damaged. And they can play that memory back to the mouse a year later, a third of its life later, and have it instantly refreshed. And we don't know the subjective state of the mouse exactly, but that's very evocative. Or uh, 
Berger and Deadweiler, uh, his colleague at Wake Forest, have done work in primates where in a very complex pattern matching test, they can have a chip in the prefrontal cortex that enhances the ability of the monkey to pick out the right things. That's also very, very evocative. I think what happens is this. So when you hear people talking about the halting problem or Goodell's incompleteness theorem as it relates to the brain or the human mind, they have succumbed to a kind of mysticism that is utilizing uh, mathematical concepts that they don't fully understand uh, in order to justify their preordained belief, which is that consciousness, whatever that means, is not simulatable or is not materialistic. Uh, Penrose uh, was the first that I saw to cite the halting problem as a case for why uh, consciousness was quantum, was based on quantum mechanics in the brain, which is very unlikely just from thermodynamics. Right? And the halting problem is there are computable problems or there are problems in math where you can look at the problem and you cannot say, uh, will I ever reach the end of this work or not formally? You cannot prove. That's the important thing. You can say, you can guess, but you can't prove that uh, it is a problem that halts eventually or goes on to infinity. Okay? So Penrose said, ah, but humans can figure out that some problems will halt or will not. Um, but the humans are not... Uh, they're just taking a shortcut. They're not proving it. They're using a heuristic. And you can write that heuristic down in code if you want to. Right? One of the examples that uh, Nicolelis and CQRL give is uh, Alan Turing, and, and, and they call um, Turing information, which is information which can be computed on a Turing machine, and then non-Turing information, which Alan Turing himself postulated that there is such an information and for which you required a non-Turing computer to, to be computed by. Right. So there is, uh, again, I think we... And they're saying we are that non-Turing computer, therefore we cannot be simulated or computed by a Turing computer. It, it sounds to me like they have started with their assumption and then looked for things to justify it. So again, you should come down to, does a simulation have to be 100% precise or can it be approximate? Let me give you another example. Uh, when I write a book, okay, that book is a, uh, let's say the first draft I printed out, it's a, a certain physical object with certain properties. When you get a copy of my book, it is not an exact simulation of the copy that I have. Or if we have two printed versions, they're actually very, very different. The fabric or the fiber might be different. There's like the atomic matrix is very, very different. Uh, but it's close enough, right? It's close enough because the symbolic information is more or less identical. Or perhaps uh, in a first edition, there are a couple typos, and maybe more than a couple. And in the second edition, those typos are fixed. And yet, while those typos might have distracted you, you know what I meant, right? And so to be a... The real question is, can we produce functional minds in a computing substrate, right? It's not, will they be 100% exact replicas of what happened before? When you, in a second, you'll be a different person than you are now. Boom, you're a different person, right? I just said something, I put a new idea in your head, neurons fired, uh, 
new synaptic pathways will be laid down, long-term potentiation will occur tonight because of what I just said. And in the meantime, there are patterns of activity that are cementing in you this notion that every second you're a different person. So is the gap between a human mind and a simulation larger than or smaller than the gap between uh, Nicola on June 23rd and Nicola on June 24th, for instance? That's the better question. Sure, sure, and and not not that I agree entirely with their argument, but but to to give it just one more step of support, it reminds me of Seth Lloyd, who said that what you say is maybe true for books, but Seth Lloyd said that to simulate the universe, it's going to take a quantum computer the size of the universe. Well, we're not trying to simulate the universe here, fortunately. But but the human brain is perhaps the most complicated and complex thing that we know in the universe. The human and, brain and is... And the brain is, is often equated in terms of its complexity to the universe, or at least to, you know, multiplicity of galaxies and everything. The human brain is the most complex thing that we have found in the universe, the most complex thing that we know of. That doesn't mean that we cannot build more complex things ourselves. It, is, it has that unique uh, quality. Um, we're not trying to simulate the universe. And again, Seth is talking about simulation in the exact sense. In the approximate sense, it is different because you can take numerous shortcuts. I'll give you another example. In quantum mechanics itself, um, to solve the Schrodinger equation is so complex that we can't get it for more than a system, a system with more than a couple of hydrogen atoms, okay? Um, yet we have higher level algorithms that are still very computationally expensive, but can give us precision to within nanometers of what's actually happening. And those might scale as a uh, number of electrons to the eighth power in the very worst cases, or they might be um, you know, much cheaper than that if you take certain shortcuts. And they produce usable approximations. And that's a better question than, will you ever have something that is exactly, exactly, exactly the same? It, more, let me broaden out from that. We as humans have gone through uh, phases and phases and phases of thinking that we were very special and then having that knocked down. You know, uh, between the Potomac conception of the world with the Earth at the center to then the Copernican uh, conception to finally the Galilean conception, which is the Earth is not really in the middle of anything, uh, to then even uh, Einstein and relativity and post-Einstein, the discovery that the universe is expanding. There, there isn't even no complex, like no single frame that you can use. Our position in space has gotten less privileged or the Darwinian revolution that took our position uh, as a species on Earth out of privilege and just said, hey, we're just another species in a certain sense. We have certain abilities that outshine others, but we are not the, the uh, created guardians of the planet uh, by the word of God. We are just something that e emerged by accident. And so I think that this notion that the human mind is not replicable is another case of people emotionally wanting to privilege what they find so remarkable that will ultimately be torn down. Well, I'm hoping to do a follow-up interview with both uh, 
at least with uh, Dr. Nicolelis and hopefully with Dr. Ronald Securel too, and where I can press them a little bit more than I managed to do the first time. I'm, I'm also hoping, I, I also met Ted Berger at uh, GF 2045, nice. so I'm hoping to get him on, on my interview too. But one of the examples that uh, they were giving also was the, the collapse of the human brain project in Europe. Uh, and the fact that, you know, Dr. Henry Macram has been removed, there's, they said, a geologist who is running now the project. <laughs> uh, the, they, there was a letter signed by 600 uh, scientists, uh, many of them neuroscientists, uh, against uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the blueprint or, or the, the outline or, or the goals of the project. And in fact, it's been scaled down tremendously. And, and they said, uh, actually, Miguel Nicolelis said it, it has sca been scaled down at a warp speed, uh, at which point I asked him, can you say it's collapsed? And he said completely. Yeah. So I'm of A, the collapse of the human brain project, or the redefinition of it, uh, says nothing about what is theoretically possible. Um, I'm torn on that. I never, Henry Markham was saying that in 10 years, we could have a working simulation of the human brain. And that was, in my view, incredibly over-optimistic. That, that was not even close to plausible. Okay? Um, and yet, I thought that the project would be very interesting. It would fail to achieve its goal, but that it might teach us a whole lot in its failure. Now, those neuroscientists that signed that letter are people who uh, depend upon grant funding for their, their research. And would it make <laughs> more... Well, I'm not, this is not an assault on them. Would it make more sense to spend that billion euros over five years on sort of uh, grants for neuroscience projects that actually could produce a working output today or something that was almost certain to fail but could teach us something in that failure? You know, I cannot blame them for saying this is a colossal waste of money. Um, now, if you talk about the same thing 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 100 years from now, that's different. But the way that when we talk about human uploading, <clears throat> it's, that's not the right first step. The right first step is nematode uploading or something like that. You know, the nematode has 905 synapses in its entire yeah, body. That's one of the examples they give in their book. Yeah, but the fact that no one has done it, I've, I've used that myself as a case that we're not really that close, and yet now people are trying. I'm not sure if you saw the nematode hooked up to a robot uh, thing, which is very sort of primitive, but also very evocative. This robot was not programmed to back away from walls, uh, but it did so when it had sort of the nematode uh, neural net. And so you go from a nematode to a fruit fly to decades later to a mouse or something like that. And when you can produce very, very mouse-like behavior, you can even when you can take a mouse that has learned a certain maze, kill that mice, upload it to a computer, and show that the computer's relation to the mouse can run the same maze, then I will start to think that we're on uh, the right track and that human uploading might be uh, a decade or two decades or three decades after that. But we're not close to that right now. So that's, that's what we should be looking at is let's see if we can make the fundamentals work for a much, much simpler neural structure.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this kind of reminds me about all the skeptics I've had on that, on, on specifically the Human Brain Project on my show. And, and those are luminaries such as Noam Chomsky, Marvin Minsky, then you have Gary Marcus, uh, Stuart Hameroff, of course, and a bunch of others who are all like, absolutely. And they're all coming from different points of view, but they were all highly skeptical of the Human Brain Project. Yeah. Uh, well, and it, it makes sense. And I know uh, Gary Marcus, in particular, he's, a, he's become a friend. And it may, at Gary, by the way, I'll tell you in conversation, he sees no fundamental philosophical reason that we cannot achieve uploading. Right. So, and I don't have any idea what Chomsky thinks. And Hammerhoff is not a luminary in my mind at all. <laughs> I think he's, he's on stuck in the Penrose model. Um, but you talk to when you talk to eminent neuroscientists, and I and I know a few serious neuroscientists now. Even they are split, but the split is uh, you know more like fifty-fifty on whether or not they can achieve computing. And what I observe is the ones who also have a background in computing are not exactly unanimous, but they are. They generally think it's theoretically possible, but that it's likely to be very complicated and much harder than we think it is right now, which is more or less my view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ramez, I think uh, we, we've covered uh, a lot about your book and especially the technology, which is the foundation of, 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 of the book or sort of the, the context within which the plot unfolds, if you will. But let me ask you a few other questions. Um, first of all, what's next for Ramez now? Are you writing another book or any update on the film options? Uh, we'll see with the film option. Uh, things happen slowly in Hollywood, but my understanding is a script is being written right now for Paramount, uh, and uh, we'll see if Paramount likes it or not. Uh, I, will, I have another novel uh, in development. It's in very early stages, uh, and that's about all I'll say about that. But it's more science fiction set in the relatively near future on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh can I push you a little bit on that and ask you yes or no? Is it on technological unemployment? <laughs> that is one theme that I'm playing with. I actually have several novel options right now. I have not committed to one of them yet. And technological unemployment is maybe not the core of any of the books, but it is something that I think is an interesting and important topic. And in one of the books, it, it sort of plays a substantial role. Mm-hmm. So let me grab that idea for a second then, because... You know, besides being a fantastic science fiction writer, you're also a kind of a expert in a number of other fields, such as uh, uh, technological development, uh, renewable energy, environmental sustainability, uh, economics, etc. So, I've talked to a number of people on technological unemployment, and it's the same uh, kind of uh, breakdown. Uh, as as with respect to mind uploading, for example, you have the skeptics and you have those people who say it's already happening. So wh- whereabouts do you stay? Do you stand on that? There's always been technological unemployment, not always, but dating back at least 200 years, there have been jobs destroyed by technology. The question is um, two questions. One, the pace at which new jobs are created and at which people gain the skills to go into those new jobs, okay? Um, And sometimes that pace has been slow. Um, It is possible that some of the technological unemployment caused at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution lasted a decade or two. It's tough to say from the data, but that is one interpretation thereof. 
The second question is the bigger question about right now. And even on the pace question, you can make the case that the pace of technological change is now happening more rapidly than ever, and it's not clear that the pace of education and skills gain is happening at fast. So you have a, a pace problem, right? And can we accelerate one, for instance? Can we accelerate the way in which people learn new skills? There's a second sort of the, um, the strong technological unemployment case is uh, articulated as technology is getting so good at replacing humans that it is simply not possible for humans to keep pace uh, with the rate at which jobs are being destroyed. And that no matter what we do, it will be the case that there will be um, an increase, a lasting increase in the number of humans that simply have no jobs that, that they can do. The first issue is, is very real. Uh, I'm not certain about the second. Um, I think uh, as a practical matter, we might approach the second. It might look like the second case for quite some time um, because people take time to learn new skills. And if you're a taxi driver, for instance, uh, in midlife or later, and self-driving cars destroy those jobs, um, even though there a new job niche is created by technology that in theory a human can fill, it might be very difficult for you if you didn't get the right education growing up, uh, if the right resources are not there for you right now, or even just from a motivation standpoint, to adapt to that new job possibility that technology opens up. So I do think that there is uh, something to be concerned about. Um, the, it's double-sided in the sense that the reason we should be concerned is if technology is destroying these jobs, if technology is destroying these jobs, it's also making uh, products and services cheaper for everyone, right? The self-driving car has huge benefit for potentially billions of people. In the U.S., it has huge potential benefit for 300 million people. And in the U.S., there are about 3 million people that drive cars. So 1% of people might be negatively impacted and their families and, and so on. So it's many of these cases are sort of widespread good brought by automation, benefit to lots of people, and then a very concentrated problem for the relatively small set of people who used to do those jobs. But, you know, I, I just last week I interviewed Martin Ford, uh, on his book, The Rise of the Robots, and I'm hoping to interview uh, the two professors from uh, MIT, McAfee and Bjorn Yolofsson. We're uh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, they both put like very solid, straightforward arguments to say that what happened at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution is very different than what's happening right now. And they give a number of economic data, such as uh, productivity uh, and wages and the divergence thereof. Uh, they, they talk about uh, the, the purchasing power of the middle class. They talk about the fact that not only the low-end jobs will be the ones who would be replaced by the machines, but not only the blue-collar jobs like taxi drivers and mailmen, etc., but even the white-collar jobs, most of them actually have been uh, starting to be replaced in the last five or ten years. Uh, and, for example, just one of the examples given was that uh, uh, you know, corporations used to have a certain kind of uh, financial department, which was very well-paid, white-collar jobs. And in the last uh, seven or eight years, those departments have collapsed by 40 or in some cases 50%. 
Yeah. Um, and, and they've been replaced by algorithms uh, or, or anyway, machine intelligence and, and automated accounting practices and all kinds of things like that. Uh, and, and so, and the other problem is that um, the sort of replacement of one job with another presumes that we, one would have enough time to train the, the people from the old jobs into the new job. So take the unemployed taxi driver and train him for something before that other something becomes obsolete in its own yes. right. So yeah. that's one presumption. And the other presumption is, of course, that we know exactly what will be that next job, whereas our experience would put evidence to say that we don't often know where those new jobs will show up. So we cannot really direct the unemployed into that hopefully future employment. And when you combine that with the accelerating pace of, of, of development, then it's kind of becoming hopeless. Hopeless is a very big word. So, well, it's falling behind. At least the pace of of of, of people becoming unemployed will be faster than the pace of people finding new employment in new fields. It's possible. We don't really know. So, I think that it, Martin Ford is more pessimistic than uh, Bernalson and McAfee. By the way, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so today, what's happening? The jobs that are clearly replaceable by software are those jobs that are very rote and very routine. So a financial person who just takes in one spreadsheet, <clears throat> applies a number of macros to it, or takes in reports from 10 places, does manipulation of the data in a very consistent, the same way, and then produces an output, he is operating like a machine, and that person is easy to replace. Um, but they say most jobs our, our, in our world are like that. Yeah, but 99.9% .9 of jobs used to be farming, and now it's 1%. So it's, the question is not yet, are there new, uh, is there an end to all possible jobs that humans can do? The question is, given that a lot of these jobs may go away quickly, uh, what you raised, how fast can we train the person for a new job? Now, those white-collar workers who stand to lose their jobs, I'm more optimistic about their ability to be retrained for their things. And the reality is that it may be that you find that 90% um, of someone's work can be replaced by a computer, uh, and, but that 10% can't right now, at least. In which that case, what ends up happening is that... Um, you don't end up destroying even 90% of the jobs. You destroy some number of the jobs go away, and you have some people left behind that are more scalable, can do work for more clients or work at a larger scale because they, they do that, that top percent of work and sort of supervise or use computers to do the rest. But as the cost of the service drops, you also end up with increased demand for the service. But people can't afford to buy that demand, for example. So, so they give us the example of the old companies which used, like, let's say, Kodak or GE or GM that used to, to have hundreds of thousands of employees. And now you have Kodak being replaced by Instagram in terms of at least valuation by 13 or 15 people. And, and, and Google and all the other Silicon Valley miracles, Facebook, etc., take a fraction of the work force that was required in the past. And so if you don't have that purchasing power, that income for people to spend in terms to purchase that service, even if it's much cheaper, they still can't buy it. 
So I do think the world has to potentially deal with um, changes to our social system and our economic system. To, because if you imagine that these uh, automated things that we're building will themselves produce lots and lots of value, then we do have to think about how should we be allocating that value? And should we treat every person on Earth as more sort of a co-owner of uh, the resources rather than someone born with nothing and not guaranteed to get anything? And if you look at you know, proposals like a basic income or various variants of that, would then put the purchasing power in people's hands. But I, I think the case is still exaggerated. Um, there are many skills that today we do not know how to replace. So Bernalski and McAfee use nursing as an example, something that A, is booming right now uh, around the US and Europe and Canada, and B, it's very difficult to replace a nurse with software or a machine. And it's because of the nurse's soft skills and also that the patient uh, is today, at least, uh, most soothed by someone who... Uh, is a human that they can connect with, right? So there are, and there are other jobs where uh, people can probably get what they want in the lowest, cheapest form from automation, but they may want 10% better, or the, the final little bits that a human can only give. So secretarial work, for instance, is one where it's potentially would soon will have an automated agent that does let's say it does 90% of what a human secretary can do for you. That will have two effects. One, it might destroy secretarial jobs. The bigger effect actually is that more people will be able to have secretarial assistance. And the remaining secretaries uh, will be valued for how good they are at the 10% of work that can't be automated. But that argument was given back in the day for horses and automobiles, right? And people were saying we would find it machines Courses are still better than machines, and, and we would find better and easier jobs for the horses where machines would supplement them rather than replace them. We know that's not how it worked out. That is definitely not how it worked out. And some jobs will just be automated away, right? So I, I think radiologists might go away ultimately. It's a high-paying job. Um, but I don't think that doctors as a class are likely to go away for a variety of reasons. Hmm. And Nicola, I have to go. I have an appointment coming up at this hour, too. Very well, Ramez. I really appreciate your time. So let me, let me close your, uh, our conversation today with, with uh, two very quick questions. The first one is, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? Rameznam.com. Fantastic. And the second one is, we touched on your book and a little bit about technological unemployment. We had a great conversation, as always. What's the message? What do you want people to take away from this with you today? I think, as I said last time, last time that we did a one-on-one, -on -one, it's really the future belongs to those who create it. Uh, so don't just stand by and hope that it gets better or worry that it gets worse. Go out there and do something. Create the future. Ramez Nam, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Nicola.